How do you recognize your family? How do you recognize your family members? One of my all-time favorite children's books is Are You My Mother? The Dr. Seuss book chronicles the story of a little bird born in a nest while his mother was gathering food for him. After coming to life, the little bird immediately wondered, where is my mother? And so the story starts with the bird. He cannot fly, but can walk. And so he walks out of the nest. He falls down this tree, and he begins searching for his mother. And so he starts to go up to animals like a dog, a hen, or a cow, and ask the question, are you my mother? And they all respond in a similar way, how can I be your mother? I am a cow. And so the baby bird, feeling a little frustrated and a bit desperate, starts to go to things like a car, a boat, a plane, and a snort, that is a crane, and ask the question, are you my mother? But when he comes to the snort, that snort grabs the baby bird and puts him right back in his nest as his mother returns. And when the mother looks at the baby bird, she asks him one question, do you know who I am? And the baby bird responded in great confidence and certainty, you are not a dog, you are not a hen, you are not a cow, you are not a car, a boat, a plane, or a snort. You're a baby bird and you are my mother. The baby bird, through great investigation and deductive reasoning, was finally able to recognize his mother. He could recognize that his mother looked vastly different from everyone and everything that he encountered. Now Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, does something very similar to the baby bird at the end of the story. He recognizes that his family members look vastly different from everybody else in the world. However, unlike the baby bird, Jesus is not looking upon their physical appearance. No, he looks at their relationship to him to recognize who is in and who is out. It's only those who do the will of God that can be considered Jesus' mother, his brother, and his sister. And listen to me, to be part of Jesus' family is to receive Jesus' forgiveness. Friends, it's of the utmost importance that Jesus recognizes you and me as his brother, his mother, and his sister. I think we might be quite shocked at the end of the chapter to see who finds himself inside and outside the family of God. Well, I have two points that work to answer the question, who is in Jesus' family? Our first point is Jesus recognizes and rejects those on the outside. So he recognizes and rejects those on the outside. And our second point, Jesus recognizes and redefines those on the inside. So he recognizes and rejects those on the outside, and then he recognizes and redefines those on the inside. It's been a couple of months since we've been in the book of Mark, so I want to remind you of what's going on. 
Jesus began his ministry with the words, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And the king has come to set up his kingdom, and we've seen the effects of it. It's been amazing. Lepers have been cleansed, demons driven out, diseases healed, and a lame man restored to walk. Yet even greater than these miracles We've witnessed that the kingdom of God comes with forgiveness of sins. Those inside the kingdom find full forgiveness of sins. The paralytic was one of the first to experience this when Jesus looked at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this kingdom, as we've seen, has been miraculous. And it's made Jesus very popular. He's been very popular with most but he's also been despised by some. Speaking of this, hosp- this hostility, the opposition mainly has come from the scribes and the Pharisees. And this opposition, at least up to this point in the book of Mark, has stayed fairly indirect and really behind closed doors. However, in our text today, the indirect opposition evolves into an in-your-face confrontation from the scribes. And also we're going to see a direct opposition from some of the most unlikely people. It's like we have a scene from a reality TV show. The drama is high. It's about to get wild. Yet Mark is doing something here. He doesn't want us to just mindlessly witness the drama. No, he wants us to see that Jesus clearly distinguishes those that are on the outside from those that are on the inside. Who is in Jesus' true family? Mark paints us a picture so we can clearly recognize them. Well, look with me at the setting in verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. So Jesus enters a house, it's most likely Peter's house in Capernaum that we saw in chapter 2, verse 1. And the text goes on to say, inside the house, what happened? Another crowd gathered again. It's really hard to describe just how popular Jesus was at this point in his ministry. You see, the crowds have stuck to Jesus like gum under a shoe. So much so that he's prevented from doing something so necessary to life that is eating. And that's what the text says. Jesus could not even eat. But the text doesn't just say it was Jesus. Who else is with Jesus? They were unable to eat. Who is they? Well, that's the disciples. That's the immediate context. Jesus called the 12, if we remember, goes on a mountain, and right here they come down, I'm assuming, presumably, to celebrate, and they are interrupted by the crowds. The disciples are tasting for the very first time what Jesus has tasted his entire ministry, discomfort and disruption. Well, speaking of discomfort and disruption, Jesus experienced serious hostility from two groups of people who clearly show by their actions that they're opposing Jesus and his mission. To our first point, Jesus recognizes and rejects those on the outside. Well, Mark, if you look at verse 21, allows us to kind of be a fly on the wall when Jesus' family hears all about the chaos from the crowds. 
Some of your translations might say friends, relatives, or even some might say his companions instead of the word family. It's very ambiguous in the Greek. It literally reads those of him. Now I side with the majority of translations that understand this verse referencing Jesus's blood family. In verses 20 through 21, we're given these kind of two parallel scenes that are playing out simultaneously. It's like we have two screens. So on one screen right here in verse 20, we have people inside of a house as Jesus is about to teach. And on the other screen is his family receiving word about the wake of his ministry. I don't think it's really hard to imagine what Jesus' family might be saying. One of his brothers shouts, you know, I heard he stayed up all night healing people and casting out demons. One of his sisters might have said, you know, I heard he touched a leper. One of his brothers might have said, I heard he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And maybe another sibling chimed in in a frightening voice. I heard the Pharisees and Herodians were seeking to put him to death. We do not know what they heard or what was said, but we do know how they concluded. Verse 21 says this, they set out to restrain him because they said what? Because they said he was out of his mind. His family with urgency resolved to seize him thinking that Jesus had gone a bit too far in his ministry. They labeled him as someone who was off his rocker, who had gone too far in the deep end, who needed to be brought back to reality. Now my question is for everyone here, how are we supposed to think about Jesus' family? Are they genuinely concerned for his well-being? Or are those closest to him actually opposing his ministry? I think that's a good question. And I believe that answer comes in our next section. Let me explain this to you. Now remember our two scenes because this is important. Throughout his gospel, Mark will use this technique called sandwiching. Meaning he sandwiches a passage between two others to help bring out its theological meaning. At first... Kind of like what we see in verses 22 through 30, it might seem like an odd interruption, but when you grasp what Mark is doing, it actually provides the key to help us unlock its theological purpose. So in our passage today, we witness Mark using that very technique to help us understand Jesus' family's reaction. The first scene of Jesus inside the house in verses 22 through 30 provides the key to help us understand just what Jesus' family is up to. Look with me at verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So here we have the scribes. Who are the scribes? Well, they were experts in the Old Testament, and they were known for their expertise. They were most of the teachers that would teach the Jewish people on the Sabbath. And we've run into several scribes so far around Galilee. But these scribes in verse 22, 
They are different. They've come from Jerusalem. This is an official delegation from the capital city. They've come for one purpose and one purpose alone, to publicly pronounce judgment on Jesus. Why do I say that, you might ask? Because the fact-finding seems to be over. The questions are non-existent. These men have come to put an end to Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. It would be a very punchy thing to say that they were trying to cancel Jesus. But that doesn't quite explain what's going on. The seriousness of their theological charge carried the death penalty in the Jewish law. We have moved from you are out of your mind from his family to I want to put an end to your life from the scribes. This is an escalated hostility. Now, what was the charge that was leveled on Jesus? Well, they bring two charges. Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. That is just an alternative name for Satan. And he drives out demons by the rulers of demons. That is, again, Satan. These two charges, I think they're both saying the exact same thing. The scribes are attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. And I'll say that again. The scribes are attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. I want us to notice that the scribes are not questioning the miracles. They're not coming to Jesus with these doubting questions like, Jesus, stop your sleight of hand stuff. Quit doing these so-called miracles. They're not actually real. They're far from doubt and uncertainty. Denying the miracles was impossible. So now, now they only have two options. They can either attribute the miracles to God or to the devil. They cannot deny the miracles themselves. The scribes couldn't cast doubt on the miracles, so they were forced to go after the miracle worker. Now my question for us is this. Why the serious charge of blasphemy? Why would they, why would they, um, why would the escalation and accusation that Jesus was in alliance with Satan? Well, I think the answer is simple. I quoted Sinclair Ferguson in a sermon not too long ago, and I think he answers this question, and I just want to quote him again, because we're going to see this opposition as we continue in Mark, and I want us to remember this. Why are they doing this? Well, I think this is the answer. The crux of the controversy was about the character of God. The scribe said, God cannot come to us like this and do these things so humbly and graciously. Therefore, this, this man cannot be the son of God. They eventually crucified Jesus because they would not tolerate what his words and works revealed about the character of God. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father, and the scribes did not like at all what they saw. Their cruel charge stemmed from their unbelief, and their false assumptions about God kept them from ever even entertaining the idea that Jesus was the Son of God. Well, how did Jesus respond after the scribes attributed his power over demons to Satan? Well, he starts to speak in parables. What are parables, you might ask? 
Well, parable is just an everyday story that conveys a spiritual truth. And he really gives two sets of parables in verses 23 through 27. The first set is in verses 23 through 25, which deals with the absurdity of their statement. Look with me there. Mark writes this. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. You see, Jesus exposes them for their illogical thinking. Satan may be diabolical, but he is not dumb. Satan is after self-preservation above all things. He knows that his end is imminent, but he is wreaking havoc against everyone until that day. Sam Storms was helpful in his summary of this text when he writes, in other words, Satan would never be guilty of spiritual suicide. Jesus isn't saying that there is harmony, trust, or loyalty in Satan's kingdom. Undoubtedly, every demon in existence is selfish and perverted, but Satan would never allow any demon to undermine his efforts. Quite simply, Sam Storms concludes, Satan cannot cast out Satan. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, what you're saying is very illogical. Now Jesus moves on in verse 27, giving another parable to explain that these miracles, they prove that Satan's efforts are in fact hindered but they're hindered from someone else's doing. Look with me at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can what? Then he can plunder his house. We heard David Nobles read Isaiah 49 about the servant of the Lord who will rescue his captives and defeat his enemies. It actually says the word plunder his enemies. And we have that same wording, that same imagery here in verse 27. Mark is showing us that Jesus is in fact the prophesied servant who will liberate his people. Well, who holds them captive, you might ask? What's the strong man? Who is the strong man? Well, that's undoubtedly Satan. The house is the present evil world, and his possessions are the people in spiritual captivity. Now, you might be wondering, self, why is Jesus giving them this parable? Well, Jesus, in giving them this parable, helps them understand the true nature of his ministry. He gives them an explanation of what he's actually doing. He's not possessed by Satan. No, he's putting an end to Satan's schemes. Driving out demons clearly shows he has entered the strong man's house. And every encounter that Jesus has with Satan and his demons, he is defeating him blow by blow, culminating at the cross and his resurrection. Satan is bound, meaning he is powerless to oppose God's hand, his plan, and his people. The kingdom of God will advance because the power of God is behind it. Well, these parables together teach that this power over Satan 
testifies to God's presence among his people. I'll say that again because I think this is important. If you were to think, how do these parables fit together? Here it is. They teach that God's power over demons testifies that God's presence is with his people. Jesus Jesus demonstrates over and over throughout his ministry that the power at work among the people of God is through the Son of God. That's what Jesus says in a parallel passage in Matthew 12, verse 28. What does he say? If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, somebody help me. What does that mean? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is driving out demons by the Spirit of God, so what does that mean? The kingdom of God has, in fact, come among his people. Jesus has already established that Satan isn't the one who is at work. That doesn't make any sense. It can only be by the power of God, which proves what? That the king is here with his kingdom. Evidence abounds to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, who by the power of God is conquering Satan and liberating his people. That's what Jesus means by these parables. Yet these scribes from Jerusalem, they have gathered all the evidence of Jesus' ministry, and what do they conclude? They look at everything that Jesus has done, all the miracles, and what do they say? They say that he is a demon. In their eyes, the paralytic walking, the shriveled hand being restored, the leper cleansed, and the liberation of those with unclean spirits, they all signal what? The scribes are saying they all signal the work of the devil. And Mark in verse 30 makes it abundantly clear what the scribes concluded about Jesus. What we read in verse 22 Mark crystallizes in verse 30. Look with me there. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, Jesus next responds to their blasphemy by warning the scribes that they are on the brink of committing an eternal sin when if they do this, they will move beyond repentance and beyond forgiveness of sins forever. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I want to tread very, very, very carefully as we move into a couple very difficult verses. First, there is disagreement about what this specific sin is. And secondly, I want to say that there might be people in here who at one point in your life have been very, very fearful that you have committed this unpardonable sin. These are a difficult set of verses. But by God's grace for the Christian, we do not have to fear them. I will break this section up into three small subpoints, and I will get you, and I will give you each of the subpoints as we come to them. So the first subpoint is a promise hidden. If you look with me at verse twenty-eight, 
you will actually see a glorious promise that I think we tend to skip over. It's kind of like a college student taking an organic chemistry test. She gets a 99 on that test, but once she looks at the 99, she realizes that she missed one answer. So in haste, she goes to that one answer and kind of dwells on that. I think this verse has a similar effect on us. We skip right over verse 28 because we're so curious about this unforgivable sin. But I think if we do this, please hear me, we miss this breathtaking promise that Jesus gives to all humanity. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus says this. This is such good news. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. (laughs) Did you read that? People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. How are people forgiven? We read about that in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What does Jesus say? Repent and believe the good news. So repentance and faith in him, that's how you receive forgiveness. And it's amazing, all throughout the Bible, we see God forgiving people. We see God forgiving people who have committed heinous sin and even heinous blasphemy if if they genuinely come to him in repentance. What was David? David was an adulterer and murderer, and God forgave him. What about Peter? Peter denied Christ three times, and God forgave him. What about Paul? Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, calls himself a former blasphemer. And what did God do for him? He forgave him in Christ. So friends, please listen to me. Verse 28 is a beautiful promise for us. Jesus is saying that no matter what sin you've committed, he will forgive you if you come to him in repentance. No matter what blasphemy you've uttered at God, he will forgive you if you come to him in repentance. We can hang our hat on that. That is a glorious promise. I pray that we never forget that. Well, if you're not a Christian, I just want to welcome you here this morning. I want you to please hear me. Your specific sin is not keeping you out of heaven. Your specific sin that you're committing right now is not keeping you out of heaven. You know what's keeping you out of heaven at this moment? It's your lack of repentance. I was reminded this morning as I was thinking about this, Acts 2 and Acts 3. Peter gives his first and second sermon, and he looks at a people, these Jewish people, and he calls them out for crucifying Jesus. He looks at them and literally says, you crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe one of the most heinous sins you can commit, that they sent Jesus to the cross. But what does he say? He looks at them and says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. If you repent, if you turn to Jesus, who lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve, your sins will be blotted out. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, Jesus shed his blood for you, so come to him. Come to him and he will forgive you. 
every single one of you. That's our desire for you, that you would come to him. He will not cast you out. All right, we saw a promise hidden, and now we see a warning heard. Now Jesus gives us a warning in verse 28 about an eternal sin that completely closes the dam of God's grace and mercy to a person. He refers to this as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that we have no indication whether these scribes have committed this sin. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. We do not know. But apparently, they were in danger of it. What we do know is that people in this life can be closed off to forgiveness forever. But how is that the case? Didn't Jesus say that all sins and all blasphemies will be forgiven? Is verse 29 an exception to verse 28? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it puts you beyond forgiveness because those who commit these sins are so hardened in their hearts that they are unable to repent. Their persistent sin of unbelief has hardened their hearts to the point that repentance is not even on their minds. It never will be. That seems to be happening right here when the scribes who are so hardened in their sin they look at Jesus, the Lord of glory, and call him Satan. They can't even distinguish between good and evil. They are attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the works of Satan. And their hardness of heart is putting them in a dangerous position where they might reach a point where repentance will no longer ever be possible. There comes a point and we'll never know this, nor will never or will never ever able to to discern people who have come to this point, but where the Spirit has abandoned the arrogant sinner forever. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse twenty nine. To illustrate this, I was on a rope swing in high school. I was swinging from a cliff into a lake, and as I jumped, one of my friends yelled, snake, and when he did that, it's like I could not let go of that rope, and I held on to that rope until I crashed into the side of the cliff. Friends, Jesus tells us that there is a sin that can be committed, a hardness of heart that can be achieved, and when that happens, Letting go through repentance is not possible. They will go crashing into destruction. It is inevitable. Well, my last subpoint: a fearful heart. Some of you sitting in your seats might be fearful that you have committed this sin. Or maybe you're fearful right now that you might commit this sin one day. Christ Fellowship, I want to state this as plainly as I can. Please listen to me. Christians, Christians cannot commit this sin. It is literally impossible. We will never come to a point where, we're stop, where we stop repenting. Jesus says that he will lose none of his sheep, that all his sheep will be with him in paradise. It is impossible for us to commit this sin. And even fear about committing this sin it shows that we have not committed this sin because those that have committed this sin, 
There's no remorse, there's no conviction, and there is no fear. If you're worried about committing this sin, it surely shows that you haven't. Well, let me state one more thing to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. I read one commentary that said this, and this just stuck with me all week. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking for forgiveness of God and being denied of it. I love that. There's not a record in all of Scripture of somebody coming to God asking for forgiveness, and he looks at them and says, no, I will not forgive you. If you come to him, he will not shut the door of forgiveness on you. So I want to tell you one more time, your specific sins are not keeping you out of heaven. Come to Jesus. His mercy is more. He will save you. Well now, we've witnessed the scribes reject Jesus' ministry in one of the worst possible ways and attempt to oppose others from following him. It's not difficult to discern that the scribes are sitting outside the kingdom. Jesus recognizes and rejects these people who blaspheme and confuse his work for Satan. But my question is, what does this seemingly bizarre account teach us about Jesus' family? If you look at verse 31, the scene moves back to Jesus' family, who finds themselves outside of the house looking for him. Mark writes this, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. If you remember, verse 21 states ambiguously in Greek that Jesus' companions were attempting to seize him because he was out of his mind. I think verse 31 sheds light on exactly who those people are in verse 21. Mark states that his family has shown up outside. The scene continues, and they have sent word for him. They are calling and asking for Jesus, but why? Why are they doing that? How are we to understand his family's actions? Well, that's where Mark's sandwiching technique comes in. Jesus' closest people to him are acting comparably to the scribes. Jesus' family is attempting to restrain and redirect him away from his ministry. Although they are not attributing his ministry to Satan, Mark wants us to see, I believe, through this sandwiching technique, that to avert Jesus off his mission is a clear sign that you're siding with Satan. What happens when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ? Well, then Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go die. And then Peter says, no, 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 no. That can't be true. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me what? That's exactly right. I think that's what's going on here. His family is trying to exert their rights over him while not realizing that in doing this, they actually find themselves on the outside of his true family. It's quite ironic that the crowds and disciples are on the inside and his family is on the outside. It should be the exact opposite. The family should be in the house. It's symbolic, I think, of what's spiritually happening in this verse. 
So I want to give one observation and application before we move on to our final, and I promise, a shorter point. Proximity to Jesus does not equal salvation from Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not equal salvation from Jesus. Kids and youth, I would love just for a moment for you to look and listen to me. Jesus is not a... um, Being around Jesus is not a substitute for following Jesus. I think one of the greatest blessings in your life, if you look at me, is that your parents have decided to raise you in a gospel-centered home. Nevertheless, as we've learned in our passage, that sometimes the people closest to Jesus are those that do not have a relationship with Jesus. Friends, that was my story when I was a kid. I grew up thinking that I was with Jesus, thinking that I was a follower of Jesus because I was always around Jesus, but I actually hadn't placed my faith in Jesus until I got to college. Kids, your parents, your parents cannot pass their faith down to you. I promise if they could, they would do that right now. It's your responsibility to repent and believe in Jesus. Being close to Jesus isn't enough. You need a relationship with him. And that's, our, that's your parents and that's your pastor's greatest desire. I would encourage you as you are going home in the car, ask your parents how they came to know Jesus. How did they come to a relationship with Jesus? They would love to answer that question. Well, one application, parents, your kids, your kids don't need to be around Jesus. They need Jesus. I'm using this punchy phrase for effect. They obviously need to be around Jesus, but I think we can sometimes inadvertently act like if they're around Jesus, well, that means they're right with Jesus. We bring them to church, we read our Bibles to them, and we finish our night thanking Jesus for the day. But we can easily forget that they themselves, they themselves need to repent and believe in Jesus too. Now please hear me, I want us to continue all of those things, but I never want us to lose sight of the fact that we must be offering this glorious gospel to our kids. We must be calling them to repent and believe in the good news. Why? so they can be counted among the family of God, so they might receive full forgiveness. Let's pray desperately, and let's continue to bring them to Jesus, where they might find forgiveness for sins. Well, it's truly shocking to see how Jesus' earthly family, by attempting to exert authority over him, demonstrated that they were outside of his true family. So now we're left with the question, Who is in Jesus' true family? Well, Jesus, after hearing about his family's demands, takes the opportunity to teach who is actually a part of his family. To our final, and again, shorter point, Jesus recognizes and redefines those on the inside. He does this in verses 33 through 35. Look with me there. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does what? 
Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus' family persistence seems to, seems to cause a little commotion inside the house. It would kind of be like this. It would kind of be like if there was emergency outside. I didn't know it, and words started trickling in. It started trickling in little by little through whispers, and then one brave soul stood up and said, Bryce, your wife is outside, and she is demanding to see you. And I would say, okay, and then I would just walk off. <laughs> um, but I think that's what's happening in this scene. Someone in the crowd presumably finds the courage to speak up, letting them know that Jesus' is, family is outside seeking him. Well, what does Jesus do in response? Well, the text says in verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him. I want to read that again. And looking about at those who sat around him. Jesus doesn't immediately speak, does he? No, he actually starts to scan the room. He starts to look at everyone seated around him. And I believe this first impulse to look is showing us something very, very important. It shows us that Jesus correctly perceives the allegiance of people's hearts. I'll say that again. Jesus correctly perceives the allegiance of people's hearts. We saw the same thing in Mark 2 where Jesus saw the faith of the friends carrying their paralytic friend. Jesus can see what nobody else can see. And as Jesus looked around the room, he understood perfectly what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and who in the room was a part of the kingdom of God. He looks at all the people in the room perfectly perceiving those on the inside and those on the outside. But the people in the house, they don't see what Jesus sees. The crowd's response gives evidence of this when they're saying, Jesus, you got to go outside. Your family is outside. Well, Kelsey got this Where's Waldo book from the library last week, and we as a family have been searching for Waldo and his friends almost every night. It's a book that depicts like a hundred people and things on a double page, and you have to search for Waldo and his friends in the chaos. Long story short, for about three nights, I searched for Waldo's dog on this one page. <laughs> it was like 30 minutes every night. I'd put the kids to bed, and I'd like take this book out at our kitchen table and search for Waldo's dog. And it was like, at one point, I was like, what in the world is going on? I literally cannot find this dog. Because we'd be like, I'm going to help you. And I'd be like, no, no, do not help me. I'm going to do this. And so as I was thinking about it, I was like, did I read the directions right? And so I went back and looked at the instructions, and it said, you're not looking for the dog. No, you're looking for the dog's tail. And I found that dog's tail in like five minutes. The point of the story is I couldn't see correctly until I knew what I was looking for. And Jesus helps them see his true family, but to do this, he must reorient their sight. He must help them see correctly. And he begins to do this when he says, here are my mother and my brothers. You have to think that most people upon, upon hearing this had a very puzzled look on their face. Uh, Jesus, your mother, your brothers, they're outside. We're not directly related to you. 
We've never celebrated a birthday with you. We've never done Passover together. We've never gone to be registered together as a family. How can you say that we are your mothers and your brothers? That doesn't make any sense. I have to imagine that they had no idea what Jesus was doing. Because Jesus is doing something very new here. He's reconstituting the people of God. Jesus is both recognizing and redefining his family. He's both recognizing, showing who his family is, and also redefining them. The criteria to be a family member in the kingdom, it does not consist of physical lineage. Ethnic Israel cannot automatically claim a relationship with Jesus just because they share the same ethnicity. A physical relationship with Christ is not enough. But what is it then? What is the criteria to be a member of the family of God? Well, the criteria that Jesus alone perceives is actually made known to everyone else in the room. He states, forever does the will of God. He is my mother. He is my brother and my sister. Jesus is not preventing anyone from becoming part of his family. He's simply teaching everyone that membership does not depend on nationality. Membership depends on obedience to Christ. Jesus' natural family nor ethnic Israel could claim special privilege with him. It's only those who submit to the lordship of Jesus shown through the will of God who will be considered on the inside. And Jesus recognizes those very people in the room. How comforting would that have been to hear Jesus say, you are my mothers, you are my brothers, you are my sisters. I recognize you by your allegiance to me, shown through your works. And these family members, these family members, they receive full forgiveness. Why? Because they're a part of the family of God. Well, to conclude, let's go back to our initial question. Who is in Jesus' family? Well, it's those who have a relationship with Jesus shown through obedience to Jesus. So Christ Fellowship, I want us to look around. These are your mothers. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Christ Fellowship, this is your true family. If I can quote one theologian named Sister Sledge, we are family. I got all my sisters with me and my brothers too, but that does not rhyme. So considering that beautiful truth, Christ Fellowship, as we go throughout this week, let's act like a family. Let's love one another. Let's sacrifice for one another. Let's lay down our lives for each other. And that's going to be shown in all of these different ways. But we are family. So let's act like it. Let me pray.